The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to focus on the Word of God and not all that holiday stuff that's going on that just distracts everybody. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you that we can be here this evening, that we brought us here safe through the weather outside, and that we have this opportunity to be refreshed, encouraged, and strengthened by your Word. Father, may we take to heart the challenge that we read and study as we go through Hebrews, that we need to be diligent, that we need to put forth effort, energy, uh, make a high priority of our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. Father, we pray that you will uh, help us as we focus this evening, help us to focus and to study, to concentrate on the lesson at hand. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're still in Hebrews 6. We're in the section from verse 9 to verse 13, or verse 12, rather. Let's just go over these initially to get the flow of thought in this section. The writer says, But beloved, a term that is used for believers in the Scriptures, so we know he's not addressing unbelievers. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward His name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." Okay, now we've gone through verse 9, and we've seen that that point is that we can have confidence that despite failure, God's grace always provides for recovery. Remember, He has just been giving them a rebuke for their spiritual sluggishness. See, He ends at the end of this section of verse 12 by saying that you do not become sluggish, but actually back in Verse 11, when he shifted into the warning exhortation, he said, Of whom, that is Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. It's the same word that he uses there. So they've gone into this spiritual complacency where they're allowing the details of life to distract them. They're allowing the religion, uh, the religious uh, prestige of Judaism, where most of these recipients were former priests, and they had all of the pomp and circumstance associated with 
temple worship, all of that is part of the pressure on them, and they're ready to give up Christianity and go back into the old uh, legalistic system. And so there's this dire warning that he writes in verses 4 through uh, 6 regarding the dangers of spiritual regression. But here he goes, he returns to a positive note, emphasizing confidence that he has that they can recover and they can go forward. And this word, we are confident, is the Greek word patho, which emphasizes the present results of a completed action. He is confident that because of what he knows about God, because of what he knows about God's grace, because of what he knows about his readers, that they can reverse course, they can recover and go forward, because in God's plan there's no sin that's too great for the grace of God. And no matter what you've done, you can always go forward, you can always press on. And so he's confident that they're not going to remain in this position of uh, the spiritual doldrums, but they're going to press on. And the better things that he's convinced of are not just the better things in time, but they're associated with their ultimate salvation. And that brings to bear a future orientation, as I've pointed out before. This Greek word, soteria, for salvation in Hebrews, is not a word that looks back to our past justification, but is a word that looks forward and anticipates the culmination of the whole salvation process justification, sanctification, and ultimate glorification where we realize our inheritance. And see, if you look ahead in verse uh, verse 12, he talks about inheriting the promises. So the, the doctrine that ties all this together, that binds these thoughts together, is this challenge to press on in the spiritual life because only by endurance and by patience and by consistency in taking in the Word, taking in the Word, applying the Word, not being distracted by the pressures, the vicissitudes, the pains, the problems, and the traumas of life, are we going to be able to reach spiritual maturity and then, when the Lord comes back in His kingdom, realize the blessings of inheriting the kingdom. So this is His flow of thought. Now, in The second verse that we looked at in verse 10, the emphasis is on God's justice. We always have to start with any issue, any problem, any doctrine with the person of God, with his character, with his essence, with his attributes. And his point in verse 10 is that God's justice doesn't forget or neglect or overlook the spiritual advance that we've made. No matter how badly you fail... God doesn't overlook or forget that divine good that's already been produced in your life. If you've been growing and maturing as a believer and you've been walking by means of the Spirit, there is divine good that is produced there and God doesn't overlook or forget that. But if you go into spiritual regression, you may lose ground spiritually. You may lose ground in terms of spiritual maturity. You may go through some intense divine discipline But nevertheless, God doesn't forget that which has already been uh, done. And so the emphasis in verse 10 is that God is not unjust uh, to forget. It's a double negative there. He's not unjust. He says it with a double negative to emphasize the justice of God. And we looked at the essence of God last time. 
the ten attributes of God, his sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, veracity, and immutability, and we're focusing on his righteousness and justice. Psalm 65 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, and love and mercy go out from it. So this is the foundation of understanding the character of God, that he is absolutely correct in all that he does. His righteousness, uh, the righteousness refers to the absolute standard of his character, and justice refers to its application. So whatever God does is just. We go through a lot of injustices in life, and a lot of times we wonder where God is, and if God is really paying attention, then why does he let so-and-so get away with such-and-such? And it just seems like there's some people who never get punished, and everything they touch turns to gold, and everything is wonderful, and we wonder where the justice of God is. And David did the same thing in the Psalms. He said, How long, O Lord, how long will the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? And there are two or three different Psalms where he vocalizes that very thought, and yet God says that eventually there will be justice either in time or in eternity, and a lot of times... We just don't see it. We don't, we're not there to watch what happens. It's like when the Israelites were in the wilderness and they grumbled against God because they didn't like the food. They were, they were eating manna every morning and every noon and every night. And after two or three months, they they got tired of eating those hot, fresh, shipley donuts every morning for breakfast and lunch and, and dinner. And they, it was just boring and they wanted to go back to that great cuisine of, of, uh, of Egypt. And so they grumbled and complained about the food, and God sent the quail, this just huge number of quail flew in, and they threw out nets, and they captured all the quail, and they ate quail till they got sick and died from it. And the psalmist says that God answered their prayer, gave them the desire of their heart, but he said leanness to their soul. And see, there are people in life, that's what God does. He blesses them to a point to show how absolutely miserable they are. And see, we don't see the inner soul misery that a lot of people have when the lights go off at night and they're just there by themselves or they have to look in the mirror and we don't recognize what's going on. Now, we like to. You know, that's the problem is most of us have liked to just see some people and understand their their pain and misery and watch God discipline. But see, that's that's part of our carnality and our sin nature trend. And so uh, the scriptures emphasize the fact that God is always just and he's always fair. This is what what Abraham said uh, back in Judges, I mean, Genesis chapter 17, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right. That no matter what happens, God's the one that has all the facts, all the data, all the information, and He's the only one who can uh, treat man, or each uh, collectively or individually, with absolute justice and righteousness. So the uh, writer of Hebrews says God is not unjust. He's not going to forget whatever's gone on. And there are three things that are mentioned there. Uh, related to the verb, it's the verb uh, epilanthano, which means to forget or neglect or to overlook. In a sense, it's an anthropo, uh, anthropopathism related to uh, God, because God isn't concerned with memory. So we have to always go back and remember our definitions for anthropomorphism 
and anthropopathism. Now, we just did this. Didn't we do this Tuesday night? No, we did this Tuesday night in a different series. So, see, the trouble with when you're doing different series and you do the same thing is everybody was here just on Tuesday night and say, oh, we know all this. But the people who are listening out there in, what do we call it? They, they don't listen to tapes anymore in MP3 land, DVD land, out there in media land, in the electronic, the universal electronic church. Are, uh, they're just listening to Hebrews. So they need to hear this. So an anthropomorphism is a figure of speech where uh, there is an inscription, the language ascribes to God human physical characteristics which he doesn't actually possess, like eyes, ears, nose, fingers, toes. Uh, human physical characteristics which God does not actually possess to explain his essence, policy, acts, and decisions in terms of human anatomy. So he's using human body parts to help us understand. It's language of accommodation, language of a common frame of reference to understand uh, God's work. But an anthropopathism is the same thing. Instead of ascribing physical characteristics to God, emotional characteristics are ascribed to God. And you may not realize this because most of you have heard me teach this for so long and you've heard this taught, but anthropopathism, when I went to seminary, I was surprised when we got into Psalms, that second semester, second year of Hebrew, when you're dealing with with, uh, with, with, with Hebrew poetry and you go through figures of speech and one of the first books that you have to buy is a big thick three inch book done by I think his name was Ethelbert Bullinger on figures of speech used in the Bible. Now I was an English major and I would suggest that most of you who were English majors that are here, I think there's one or two here, never heard of ninety percent of these figures of speech. But they go, he traces them all the way back to Greek. He gives you the Greek names, the Latin names for them, gives you all the examples in Scripture. It's a fantastic book. But, and he does have anthropopeia in there, which is the Latin form for anthropopathism. And uh, so I'm getting all my P's mixed up here. You have uh, uh, anthropopathism. But today we live in a world where people reject the notion that there's real anthropopathic talk. In other words, God really does feel all of these emotions. And what's interesting, and, and just to make a little connection with something I talked about on Tuesday night, remember on Tuesday night I talked about guilt and shame and how our understanding of guilt and shame has changed in the last 30 or 40 years. And ultimately you have, this is all part of personality, and we live in a world with, where we worship personality instead of character. And if you go back before 1900, you won't find works or people talking about personality. They were focused on character. And I believe that a lot of that is a result of Freud. And I've done a study, and I haven't been able to do an exhaustive study. I haven't been able to go up to the Dallas Theological Seminary Library or to any other library, but I've got a fairly decent library of my own and uh, in print and on my computer. And I have looked and looked and looked. And you will find that um, often in con- among contemporary, and I mean conservative theologians, they'll talk about the image of God in Genesis 1, that God is intellect, will, and emotion. That's what personality is. Notice that word. 
See, but you don't find theologians like Calvin or Luther or Jonathan Edwards or W.G.T. Shedd or any of these earlier conservative theologians ever talk about personality. Never do they break down the image of God in terms of mind, will, and emotion. Emotion isn't talked about. by You don't find people starting to talk about emotion in the Christian life and in God until after the midpoint of the 19th century. And years ago I thought, hmm, I wonder if that means anything. And what happened in the middle point of the 19th century? Well, that's where you have the introduction of uh, psychology and Freud and all this other stuff. So that just shows an example of how worldly thinking, the, the philosophical concepts of the world, p- put pressure on the church. The church always struggles with the garbage from the world outside. And so there's a lot of debate here. In fact, the, you, there was a time when um, when theologians believed in what was called the impassibility of God. Impassibility of God. The P-A-S-S, the core word there. Break that word down etymologically. That middle syllable there, pass, is where we, it derives from the same word where we get passion, which was a word that was typically used in the Middle Ages to talk about human emotions. They were passions, and they were uh, fleshly passions that needed to be controlled. And so when you talk about impassibility, you're talking about not having the passion and that, that emo- nothing man did would, would enter into and change the passions of God. He was impassable. And now you'll find that very few uh, conservative theologians will agree that God is impassable. God has emotion. Now, like I pointed out the other night, that uh, there's one, I will, he will remain nameless because he's near and dear to many people in the congregation, theologian who uh, wrote a paper not long ago on the emotions of God and had it published. And I challenged him on it because he said, how can you say these are figures of speech? And I went to Exodus and I said, well, if you look at Exodus where it says God got angry with with Israel, that in the Hebrew it literally says God's nose burned. In other words, you do have a figure of speech there. It's an anthropomorphism. But the anthropomorphism is an anthropopathism. So it's a double figure of speech. And that kind of one. He went, hmm, I hadn't thought about it. Maybe I need to go back and think about that. Yeah, you do. Okay. So what does God remember? See, God doesn't forget things because God's omniscient. He always knows all the knowable and nothing changes. So there's three things God remembers here. He remembers your work. He remembers your labor of love and he remembers your ministry. Now, if you look at your text, if you're using a New American Standard Bible, an NIV Bible, God forbid the uh, message or... Uh, uh, the Living Bible or some of these others, the Contemporary English Version, revised, new, the Revised Standard Version, New Revised Standard Version, any of these contemporary versions, it doesn't have labor of love there. But that's in the majority text, the majority of documents, and labor should be there. And there's other passages that use that same terminology, specifically in First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.3, which we'll look at in a minute. 
So God remembers work, labor, labor of love, and ministry. And I pointed out last time that in um, among most conservatives and evangelicals, we don't like that word work because we think of works of the law. We think of works of morality, doing something to try to impress God, except the word work really has two basic ideas, and that is one is negative, work that is done in the power of the flesh, and that which is positive, that is work that is done under the power of God the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're focusing on here is the divine good that has been produced in the person's life. So when we talk about work, we're talking about divine good. When we talk about labor of love, it's actually the labor that is that comes from the source of love. See, it's the love for one another motivates that labor. And then Christian service, that's what ministry is. It's dia, uh, diakonia here, and it means Christian service. And we're going to look at what all that means in just a minute. So we looked at this, just a summary of what we did on the doctrine of work last time. Work comes from the Greek word ergon, which simply refers to any kind of performance, doing something. It can be meritorious. It can, be, uh, it can just be activity. It can be thought. It has a broad range of me- meaning, any kind of accomplishment. So it just, it's, it's a value-neutral word in and of itself. Context indicates whether it's bad or good. As I pointed out a minute ago, some versions remove the word labor, but it's found in the majority of documents. So it should read, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. Make sure you have that uh, in your text. Write it in if it's not there. Now, we looked at the whole concept of work, and I just want to review a couple of verses we had up on the screen last week to emphasize the positive value the Bible has on work in the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. In other words, God gave you all those spiritual assets, the problem-solving devices, a completed canon of Scripture, a pastor-teacher, a local church where you can learn the Word of God, all of this is driving you to a point of production in terms of Christian service, in terms of Christian work, whatever field that may be in. Trouble is, when most people talk about Christian service, they have, they, they've been exposed to too much legalism, and they have this just narrow view of what Christian service is, and it's teaching Sunday school, working as an usher, being a deacon. Uh, work, you know, here it's baking cookies for church, which I think is a very fine occupation. But Christian service can involve all, all manner of different things, and a lot of it is just unseen. It can be, it can involve, uh, prayer for people, prayer for the sick, uh, just calling people, encouraging them, uh, helping out people you know who are going through some kind of, uh, difficulty. And a lot of this is unseen, and it should be. The lo- it's not the job of the deacons to make sure every our Sunday school teachers and some church- churches, whatever else they have, it's not the job of the leadership of the church to make sure everybody's getting out there doing Christian service. Christian service is a result of spiritual growth, not the cause of spiritual growth. So the the my philosophy of ministry is you teach the word, people respond and grow, and as they grow, the Holy Spirit is going to 
uh, bring into action their spiritual gifts, their talents, whatever it may be, and it will flow naturally as time progresses. If they sit out in the pew and take notes and have volumes of, of, of notebooks, and 20 years goes by and you don't see any Christian service, then you, you have to start wondering if they're ever really in fellowship or the Holy Spirit's doing anything because that should be the ultimate result. Ephesians 2.10, following our great passage on, being, on having a by grace through faith salvation, Paul says that we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The role of the pastor and teacher, Ephesians 4:11 and 12, is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, so that the teaching ministry of a local church is is training to teach you how to think, to understand the assets that God's given you, how to live the spiritual life, so that the outworking of that is in terms of Christian service. Paul uh, uh, negatively, it's used, for example, in Ephesians 5:11. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. So you have deeds of darkness, which would be sin, and you have uh, works of the law, which would be morality, neither of which would have any kind of spiritual value. Uh, told Timothy to instruct his congregation to do good and to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. And that uh, he also told him in 2 Timothy 3.17 that uh, 16 and 17 deals with the inspiration of Scripture so that the man of God is equipped, prepared for every, uh, for every good work. Somehow I had that in there twice. Okay, then Hebrews 10.24, we're to stimulate one another. We're to encourage one another. In other words, Christians will get together. I know you do this. Christians will get together and they'll talk about, well, how can we help that person? What can we do over here? What, what, how can we make this better? And that's just the interaction of people coming together and talking about how they can take things to a new level. And whatever the issue is, whether it's helping somebody or, or helping a missionary or being uh, uh, involved in prep school, whatever it is, all kinds of different areas, areas that we can't even uh, approach here. Okay. Let's look at this in terms of a flow chart. The Word is taught. You listen to a pastor. You listen to a Sunday school teacher. You listen to somebody on a tape, and you hear the Word being taught. Under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that goes into your soul as epinosis doctrine. Now, we all know the dynamics of that. And that's the process of divine viewpoint truth going in and hopefully human viewpoint cosmic thought being flushed out. That's the whole learning process. Is your, it's Romans 12 too, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your thinking. So that comes from coming to church. That's why church is foundationally in the scripture based on an educational model and not a fellowship model. Somebody's showing me right before church a little flyer. You know, we have these little things that you can pass out. You can use them to give the gospel. How many scripture references are on here? Eight? Eight scripture references on this little card that's like a three by five. And there's this big flyer that they got in the neighborhood. New church starts going up. And there's a picture of a Mexican food on the front. It says it's nacho. 
No, N-A-C-H-O. Nacho Mama's Church. <clears throat> Not a single Bible reference in the whole thing. And they could have put 30 in there. Not a single reference to the Bible, to Scripture, to Christ, to salvation. Oh, we live in such great times. See, what, what they've got is a church where there's cosmic truth is being reinforced and reemphasized, and there's no biblical truth whatsoever. So, but they operate on this assumption that the church is a social institution. Now, when I went to college, went to university, I'm sure that the, that leadership in the at the university had some concept of some social life among the students, sort of like keeping it down. But the main focus of the trust, board of trustees of that institution had to do with making sure that, that the students that came there would get a good education and that they would maintain their accreditation. Now, even though that was the focus and the objective of the school, there was a lot of fellowship going on. There was a lot of social life. It's a byproduct. Whenever people get together, there's social life. Just look at what happens here in the kitchen every time before class. You just can't stop it. Well, some people try, but you really can't stop it. They're going to get to know each other. But when you put the focus on fellowship and on social life, then what falls off the table is learning and education and learning the Word of God and growing. So the emphasis has to be on learning the Word, exchanging uh, human um, divine viewpoint putting divine viewpoint in your soul and getting rid of the cosmic thought. Now, when you walk by the Spirit, as you apply the Word and go forward, then that leads to spiritual growth. Now, as you grow spiritually, this is going to impact two areas. First of all, there's going to be spiritual production in the sense of the fruit of the Spirit. This is character transformation. These are the biblical Virtues, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, all of that in Galatians 5, 21 and 22, that is Christ-like character and that takes place. But then there's a second area and that of production, and that's Christian service. Now, Christian service is just part of two, two aspects. Our royal priesthood, which is towards God, this is prayer, giving, uh, reading the scriptures, learning the word, all of this is part of our priesthood. And then there's our ambassadorship, which has to do with witnessing, with teaching in Sunday school, which has to do with just living our life as a witness or testimony before unbelievers and before the angels. And there's a lot of different other different dynamics for both royal priesthood and ambassadorship. But that's what Christian service really is. It's the function of our royal priesthood and our ambassadorship, uh, the ambassadorship works in outward toward human beings, and the priesthood is toward God. So that chart shows the role of work, going to Bible class, studying your Bible, thinking about it, learning it, memorizing Scripture, memorizing promises, claiming promises, being conscientious when you're driving down the freeway, rushing to get that last-minute Christmas present, and, and some illegal alien cuts you off because I don't know how to drive in, in uh, American traffic, and you get mad and angry. and uh, that's, um, 
you have to exercise work to think about the fact that you're to respond differently. And that sometimes that takes work. And then we have the labor of love. That's the outworking of uh, Christ-like character, the love that's produced by God the Holy Spirit, and then that becomes a motive for labor in terms of service. So that's how these three aspects work out as they're emphasized in verse 10. God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name. That it focuses on his character. Whenever you see the name of God in Scripture, that emphasizes his character, his person. That's our motivation. We learn who God is and that drives us to serve him. Uh, Romans 12.1 talks about that being our reasonable uh, service toward God. It's part of our personal worship. But it's, it goes in the direction of ministry, diakonia, uh, that's uh, service to the saints. Now, there's a couple of other passages that uh, reinforce this same idea. One is 1 Thessalonians 1.3. And there Paul says, and, and it's in his opening salutation to the uh, Thessalonians, he reinforces the idea of his prayer and what he's praying for and what he's giving thanks for. And for them, he's giving thanks for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. And so you have these three things emphasized. There, there are three virtues that are mentioned there, their work, their labor, and their steadfastness. And they're each linked to something by a genitive construction, and that genitive should be understood as a source. The work comes from the source of their faith. As they learn to trust God, and as they're trusting in God, they're willing to put forth the effort needed to concentrate on learning the Word of God, studying the Word of God, memorizing the Word of God, applying the Word of God. And so that's called the work of faith. Secondly, there's the labor of love. This is the Greek word kapos, meaning to engage in an activity that is burdensome. So it goes beyond work to labor. It's going to take time. There may be self-sacrifice. If you decide to go to to seminary, it's going to mean uh, sacrifice at a certain level, staying up late at night. It's intense. If you decide to teach in prep school, if you're going to help out in different functions around the local church, it's going to take time. It's going to take energy. There are things that you're going to have to say no to so that you can do a good job in those particular things. But it's a labor that is comes from the source of love. Notice the faith is faith rest drill characterizes that spiritual growth in infancy. The labor of love is a more mature love. And then the steadfastness of hope focuses on that uh, personal sense of destiny. That's the third area. And the word there for steadfastness is that very important word, hupomone, which means perseverance, hanging in there under trial. That's what James talks about in James 1. Two, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance has its maturing result. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 5, uh, that 
endurance produces character and character hope. And see, we have hope is linked to endurance again here in First Thessalonians 1 3. So the the work comes from faith as you learn to trust God. Work is a, is comes from that source. Labor comes from the source of your love for God and motivates labor. Love for God motivates labor and your hope that is your confident expectation in your future destiny. Hope is always a future word. It's not this sort of wishful optimism that you have that, golly, I hope maybe we'll have a white Christmas. We had one two years ago. Maybe it'll happen again. No, that's just wishful optimism. It probably isn't going to happen. It most likely isn't going to happen. Uh, But the hope in Scripture is a confident expectation. It is a certainty. We know what our destiny is. And so that, because we know that from the source of our confidence, we are able to endure the difficulties, the temptations, the tests, the vicissitudes and uh, problems of life and press forward in spiritual uh, growth. So that's what Paul's praising the Thessalonians for and, and giving thanks for in his prayers is because of their work of faith or labor of love and the steadfastness of hope. Now, do you notice anything interesting in that passage? Well, we have three things. Faith, hope, and love. Do we run into those three anywhere else in Scripture? Sure we do. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, at the end of that famous chapter that uh, defines or gives us the characteristics of uh, the love that the Holy Spirit is producing in us, and at the end of the section that deals with the temporary nature of certain spiritual gifts, specifically knowledge, prophecy, and tongues, at the conclusion, the uh, writer of uh, Corinthians, Paul, says, Now, three things continue, faith, hope, and love. Now, this is really an interesting passage. There's, uh, In fact, this passage is one that really opens up the, uh, the interpretation of the last part of chapter 13 and, and just drives a stake in the heart of the whole Pentecostal false teaching on tongues. See, there's a lot of people, in fact, there's a lot of non-charismatics who believe that, that this chapter is talking about the fact that these things, um, that, that when the perfect comes, then that which is, is partial will be done away back in verse 10, that the perfect there has to do with something in the future. It has to do with being in a perfect environment in heaven, being in a state of perfection before Jesus. So they tie it to either death when we're face-to-face with the Lord or the rapture when we're face-to-face with the Lord or the second coming. Oh, I always love those articulate theologians who want to sound so erudite and just say, well, this refers to the eschaton. Oh, really? What is that? So they're just indefinitely out there in the future somewhere. And so you've said something erudite but haven't said anything. Well, the problem with all of those statements is that according to verse 10, it says, when the perfect comes... And really we should translate that the completing thing. When the completed or completed thing, when the completed thing has come, then the partial is done away with. 
And there's a contrast going on here. And if you look at verse 12, in the English it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. And the word there for now is not the same Greek word as you have for now in verse 13. The now in verse 12 is the now for RT, now generally speaking. Now we live in an age when we have a nation that promotes the liberty and freedom of the individual. See, that covers a whole period of the existence of the United States. That's two or three hundred years. It's a broad now. But see, the now, the nuni that's used there in verse 13 emphasizes a right now like this year, this week, this immediate time frame. And what Paul is saying is in contrast to um, in contrast to that which is partial and will be done away with, what continues now is faith, hope, and love. So if faith, hope, and love continue after the perfect stops, and the perfect is somewhere off when we're in heaven, then faith, hope, and love would continue beyond that, right? Well, see, we have a problem with that because... 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says that we walk by faith and not by sight. But when I die and I'm face to face with the Lord, I'm going to quit walking by faith. So are you. We'll be walking by sight. So if the doing away of the perfect in 1 Corinthians 13 is has to do with coming into the presence of God, then faith can't continue be, won't be continuing beyond that. So the that means that the the cessation of the perfect has to be in time, not in eternity or in heaven or something like that. Furthermore, Romans 8.24 says that, um, for we were saved by this, literally by this hope, but hope that is seen, walk by sight, right? Hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? In other words, hope is going to stop at when you're face-to-face with the Lord, faith and hope are not going to continue. Faith and hope are going to cease. The only thing that continues after you're face-to-face with the Lord is going to be love. And that tells you right away that in 1 Corinthians 13 that the tongues, the knowledge, and prophecy, everything had to cease in time because the perfect had to come in time, not in eternity, because in eternity there's no faith and there's no hope uh, continuing. So we have these three things emphasized in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And the now there is emphasizing the fact that it is now in this immediate church age, this post-completed canon, post-tongues, post-miraculous uh, period, what what is going to continue is going to be faith, hope, and love. These are the dynamics that drive spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And as I pointed out in verse uh, 2 Corinthians 5-7, we walk by faith. That means there's got to be an object of faith. This isn't a Kierkegaardian existential leap of faith. Well, I'm just going to believe it because I ought to believe it. See, God never asked anyone to put their brain in neutral and just believe a bunch of irrational nonsense. That's why in Acts chapter 1, Luke tells Theophilus that Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection and and gave them many convincing proofs. See, you don't put your brain in neutral when you trust Christ as Savior. 
There are rational and empirical evidences throughout the Scripture for the doctrines that are contained in the Scripture for the resurrection of Christ, for the miracles, for the work of Christ on the cross, for creation, everything. It's not, in fact, you have to put your brain in neutral to be an evolutionist. You have to put your brain in neutral to be an atheist. You have to deny so much to reject God and to reject the Scripture. You have to buy so many lies and so many fabrications. And, in fact, it's nothing more than intellectual and moral laziness to take up a position of agnosticism or atheism or postmodernism it's just another way to suppress the truth of God in your own life so you don't have to deal with the fact that God has a claim on your life as an individual created in His image for a purpose. So we walk by faith. That means we trust in an external authority who gives us comprehensible information. We have to understand it and trust it. We don't walk by sight. It's not something that is rationally or empirically discerned because rationalism and empiricism always breaks down. It's too limited. Romans 8.24 talks about the fact that we're saved by means of hope. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 because this is a very important passage for understanding the spiritual life, the whole chapter. I mean, there's just so much in Romans 8. And if we go back to verse 17, just to pick up a little context, where it's talking about spiritual life back there and inheritance. We studied this not long ago, and I just want to remind you of this. There in Romans 8:17, we read, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified with Him. The context brings in the idea of a future inheritance. Now, the trouble we have with this verse, as I pointed out before, just want to make sure you remember this, is the punctuation. The way it's normally punctuated, it looks as if you have two different things going on here. You, I mean, that are the same. Two different, two things that are the same. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ and that they're identical. But the way I've punctuated it on the screen is to show that there's two different heirships. That one is heirship of God, which is common to every believer. We inherit eternal life. But the second is being a joint heir with Christ, but that's conditional. That's if we suffer with him. And I gave you this fun little illustration of punctuating this sentence. Woman without her man is nothing. Remember that? Everybody gets a good chuckle out of this one. Women are going are going to um, punctuate it the first way. Woman without her man is nothing. And men will punctuate the second way. Woman without her man is nothing. See, it's where you put the commas. You have two completely different statements there, just depending on where you put the commas. In the first example, you end up saying man is nothing. In the second example, because where you put the commas, you end up saying woman is nothing. So it's the, the translators of Romans 8.17 put the commas in the wrong place. And there are two different airships there. One is a common airship, uh, common to every believer, 
The other is a joint heirship if we suffer with Christ. Now, that's not some uh, masochistic sort of thing where you're going to come go out and experience all the sufferings of Christ so you wear some kind of a goat hair shirt inside out or you go out and you uh, live in a cave somewhere and you beat yourself uh, in some kind of self-flagellation or you go sit on a pillar out in the desert like the pillar saints did in the 4th century with Simon Stylides and a number of others. See, th- th- this, was, this was the path to spirituality. And what's so bizarre today is with the rise of the New Age movement back in the uh, 80s and, and the shift f- away from the bankruptcy of Enlightenment rationalism that really fragmented in the 60s and 70s and the rise of postmodernism, everything is subjective. It's all about the self. And it's all about what I experience because, after all, that's so important. And so what you see in the church, remember earlier I said that the church always imitates the world? Well, as the world has become more and more subjective, of course, so are Christians. And since the late uh, or early 80s, I've seen a rise in the popularity of the books from the, from the mystics of the early church. I mean, you couldn't even find some of this stuff in print 40 years ago. And now you can go down to your local Christian bookstore and you can buy books by uh, Teresa of Avila. So you never even heard of them. But, uh, you know, all these different kinds of medieval mystics, and they're so popular. In fact, one of the big trends that's come out in the last 20 years is contemplative spirituality. And it's promoted by all kinds of conservative evangelicals. See, it just, it's just subjectivity. Let's just go contemplate our navel and call it God talking to me. So, we, we get into, we, it, that's not what we're talking about here, suffering with him. If, you're, if you are dedicated to grow as a believer, you're going to put yourself right in the smack dab in the middle of the angelic conflict with the bullseye on your spiritual hind end. And... Uh, you're not going to have any trouble figuring out where the suffering is coming from. There will be all kinds of suffering for blessing, suffering for training, adversity. Uh, in fact, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy that those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted in one form or another. You can just count on it. So you don't have to go out and try to manufacture suffering to become spiritual. It'll happen. Trust me, just study the Word, apply the Word, and it'll happen. So we go on in in chapter 8, and Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What's he talking about here? Just to put a category on, he's talking about that personal sense of destiny. When you realize how great the glory is that we're headed to and what we're being trained to accomplish and what God wants us to do in terms of that future reign as kings and priests in the millennial kingdom, then Paul says that when that becomes more real to you than your present problems, then you're going to begin to understand what this is all about. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That happens when Jesus Christ returns. So the focus here is on 
the future return of Christ. He goes on to say that the creation was subject to futility. See, there's a key verse for understanding that when Adam sinned, that sin was not something that just affected him. You know, sometimes I, I've heard this so much lately. Well, see, you know, this, this idea that there was that that you come up with. See, I am known for arguing that you can't have a, an old earth because if anything dies, not plant life, because that's a different kind of life in Genesis one, but animal life or human life. If anything dies before Adam sins, then uh, it negates the whole death penalty for sin, right? But people start, just try to squirm out from under that all the time because the implications are that you really have to get serious about the Bible. That the Bible said, if that's true, the Bible saying that the earth as we know it is only about 6,000 years old. Well, what about all this science? Well, you know, there's a lot of conflicts there. So let's figure out some way to make everything billions of years old because, you know, absolutely that those atheist science, scientists have to be coming up with the truth. And the point is, and they, they want to say that, see, spiritual death only affected Adam. Now, Adam's sin affected the whole creation. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 8.20. The creation was subject to futility. Adam's sin didn't just separate him from God. It was like an enormous shock wave off of a nuclear bomb that, re, that reverberated through every system, physical, uh, immaterial, angelic, Everything got impacted by Adam's decision in some way or another. Everything got impacted. It changed lions from being grass eaters to carnivores. It created just numerous problems. Nobody wanted to sleep with cobras anymore. Things got dangerous. And see, all that's going to change again when the millennium comes back. All of a sudden, Jesus is going to come back and, and just almost instantaneously, lions are going to are, are going to eat grass and they're going to sleep with babies and kids can put their hands into cobra den. All that's going to happen just as soon as Jesus comes back. It's just going to go right back the way it was. So the creation, all the death that you see evidenced in the fossil record is a result of a post-fall sin. Not anything that could have happened before the fall. If any of those fossils were laid down prior to the fall, then you have a major flaw in the whole atonement theology because you have death before there's sin. It just can't happen. So Paul goes on to say, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting. That's about the third time we've had this word waiting, waiting, waiting. That's hope. That's that personal sense of an eternal destiny. Eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, for we were saved by means of this hope. Let me back up. For we were saved by means of this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with endurance. See the connection between hope and endurance. If you want to develop biblical hope in your life, 
then that relates to endurance and hanging in there. And what gives us that ability to endure is that we understand the future destiny, what the training is all about. Okay, let's go forward to, back to our verse in Hebrews 6.10. So Hebrews 6.10 ends with the fact that we have, we go through all of this and we are involved in ministry, service to the saints. And this should be understood as a causal participle. It's an adverbial participle of cause that should be translated because you have served the saints and you continue to do so. So they may have been in spiritual regression, but they haven't gotten, they haven't totally gotten rid of Christianity. They're still involved in Christian service and Christian growth. Okay, well, we'll stop there and come back and work on 11 and 12 uh, next time. But we've got an understanding flow chart to work with, and we'll develop that as we go forward. Father, thank you for this time to be together, to be encouraged by your word, to be reminded that we have to have a, a focus on the future and our destiny and where you're taking us, because that is what will strengthen us in tough times as we endure the difficulties, the traumas, the pain, the suffering that we have gone through and that we may go through in this life, keeping our focus on Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word, for what it means to us, for the encouragement we derive from it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.